Hi, my name is Joe Jackson. I'm a journalist, author, interviewer, broadcaster, podcaster, and I have recently published a book called Richard Harris Raising Hell and Reaching for a Heaven. To kick off the uh, promotion for the book, I wrote an article for the Sunday Independent Life magazine in early September 2022. Uh, it, at the top of the page, it says the ghost tapes and the article is headlined A Turbulent Journey. I have never before read an article for a podcast, but I want to read this. Again, to give the backstory of the book, should you be trying to decide whether to buy it or ignore it. Journalist Joe Jackson interviewed Richard Harris for the first time in 1987. A deeply insightful and occasionally fiery encounter, it was the catalyst for a friendship that would endure until Harris's death in 2002. Here, Jackson looks back at the conversations that inform his biography of the legendary actor. It was around 11am, Saturday, October the 10th, 1987. Richard Harris was finishing his breakfast in the presidential suite of Dublin's Berkeley Court Hotel. I'd arrived a few minutes earlier and was setting up my Sony Pro Walkman to record our interview. Suddenly, Harris's spoon of muesli froze in midair. What had I said or done? I'd fired my opening salvo. Mr. Harris, you have said truth can be dull, but I would prefer today if we tried to make even murky truth gleam a little, rather than go for just colourful lies. Did I say that? Harris responded, glaring at me. The first part, yes. The second part, I said. Does it sound like you? No, it sounds pretentious. You do, not I do. But okay, why don't you direct our little movie and we'll see how it goes. Then Harris smiled and continued eating. I smiled too, because I knew I was already directing our little movie. So I hit him with the first question from my type script. Okay, would it be fair to say that during interviews like the one you did with Jonathan Ross on TV two weeks ago, you tend to speak more for effect than in truth? and you often use anecdotes as a ploy against self-revelation. Round one. Did Harris punch me in the mouth when I said that, as someone later suggested he should have? No, he laughed. But I now know it was a laugh of recognition. Harris knew what I said was true. Instead, he gave me a thoughtful and telling reply during which he said, the only thing the public is entitled to is a good performance and told me it was up to him to decide whether to allow people to devour his private life. We could not have gotten off to a better start. Within the space of just one question and answer, Harris and I defined the public versus private terrain we would explore for the rest of his life, and that I continue to explore in my biography Richard Harris, Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. It's also part of the territory that British director Adrian Sibley covers in his documentary The Ghost of Richard Harris, which gets its world premiere, well, that was then, this is now, it got its world premiere at the Venice Film Festival. I am an associate producer of the film and feature in it. Sibley's thwarted plans for a documentary, which he had discussed with Harris in 1999, were set in motion again in 2016 after he became aware of the interview tapes I'd used in my one-person stage show, Richard Harris Revisited. In 2022, my tapes 
voice, the ghost in the film. When I saw the first rough cut, I laughed aloud when I heard the quote Adrian used to kick off the film. An unseen Harris, sounding suitably ghost-like, says, It's been a turbulent journey. It was a masterful choice that frames the reflective cinematic journey that follows, is true to Harris's life and comes from the most soul-searching conversation he ever had with me. However, I laughed because the phrase turbulent journey sums up, to a delicious degree, my 15-year relationship with the man. Break for ads. I don't have ads in a podcast. With that opening salvo in 1987, I started the turbulence five minutes after we first met. But Harris, increasingly agitated by my tendency to probe, eventually let rip with his legendary anger. And yet even this was in part a pose. Harris's hissy fit also was hilarious. I studied psychotherapy in America for years. I was part of an institution run by a famous psychologist who worked with Brian Wilson. He got him out of bed, if you remember. He said at one point, alluding to psychotherapist Dr. Eugene Landy. And I found that one of the most fantastically damaging things about modern thinking and modern people is, let us discover why, why, why. It is very dangerous to unravel, to be so self-interested that you begin to ask why you did this, why you did that, why you're here. I hated my mother. I love my father. I hated my father. I love my mother. Boom, boom, boom. It goes on forever. Do you see what I mean? Yes. But were you in analysis? No. I was there because my second wife, Anne Turkel, was in analysis, and I thought the best thing I could do to understand what she's going through was to understand the process. She was a typical American, in that every time there was a problem, she had to discuss it, not with you, but with five other people. She still is like this. For example, she can't buy a dress without consulting, mark me, an analyst, two astrologers, and a psychic in Bakersfield. But this is common in America. Why do you think that is? Why? You're asking me why, Richard? Yes, why do you think that is? I don't know. Psychic insecurity? It's a disease. Because they think there are answers to everything. They want cheap answers. They want quick answers. There are no answers. But listen, you're a funny guy. Thank you. I said sarcastically as I reached to turn off my tape recorder, given that this interview was about him, not I, and I hate interviewers who hold themselves center stage. No, don't put that off, he roared. I hope this all goes down in print. You're a funny guy, because you've come in here saying, here are all my questions for Harris on pieces of paper. I want to get answers. But you are getting an interview that is not what you thought. But it's interesting, so you mustn't despair. If you despair, you should go to therapy. <laughs> I'm not despairing, but I am intent on sticking to some of these questions. That's okay. Carry on. Carry on interviewing, indeed. Incidentally, three days later, during the second session for this interview, I discovered that Harris was as fascinated by psychology as I am. His mocking lines, I hated my father, I loved my mother, boom, boom, it goes on forever, actually reflected a seminal, familial rupture in his psyche. So when and how did everything turn around during our first interview and stop us both acting the bollocks? as we later agreed we had been. Harris, who hadn't made a movie in years, told me at one point that he'd like to go back to making small, this sporting 
life-type films, not Hollywood epics. This instinctively prompted me to ask a question I hadn't planned to ask. Do you remember a script called Father and Son, I said, referring to a treatment I wrote in 1983 and hand-delivered to Horace at the Savoy Hotel in London? God, I do. It was very moving. Was that you? Yeah. It was based very much on my album My Boy, wasn't it, he said, referring to his fourth studio album released in 1971. Yes, my dad loved that album. It was very important to us both, was it? And it's about my boy, Damien and me. Is your dad still alive? No, he died at 50, partly because of drink and drugs. Oh, I see your thing about drink then. Would you let me see that script again? Sure. Now knowing that we had a shadowed father-son conflict in common, him with his father and me with mine, Harris began to see me as, quote, not just another journalist, he did not trust journalists, but as a, quote, fellow writer, he later explained. Richard also told me he felt it was at that moment our friendship began. Moment. <laughs> moment. His reference to my thing about drink was an allusion to the fact that earlier I'd reacted angrily and said he sounded callous after he suggested that people like Richard Burton chose to drink themselves to death. I also could not buy into Harris's still-quoted superficial claim that he drank to excess simply because he loved it and that he wasn't running from anything. So after we got more in tune, I raised that subject again from another angle. Richard, some people, including myself, see excessive indulgence in, say, sex and drugs and alcohol as spitting in the face of death. He replied, I think there's an element of absolute truth in what you say, but I won't concede that my drinking had anything to do with escapism. I never have and I never will. But I'm not talking about escapism in the usual sense. I mean that one defies an ever-constant awareness of impending death by grabbing life by the throat and saying, okay, if it's a duel for my soul, then until the day I die, I shall live and I shall fucking live fully. I agree with that, he said. But let me add something to this. I'm in my mid-fifties. I live according to my behaviour pattern set against, as you correctly identified, my awareness of impending doom and death. But take my youngest son's generation. We have to look through their eyes. They see nothing. They see no future. They don't get out of bed in the morning as I did in 1950, full of hope. Even though I had TB, there was a chance for me out there in the world. But there's no chance for this generation of boys. That's the real tragedy these days. I said, so there's no solution and no absolution? To quote your song, I don't know. There isn't. There is no solution because no one is trying to solve anything. And there is no absolution because young people these days don't believe in God or a God figure. Do you? I'm still clinging to a final hope that there might be a God. This would not be the last conversation Richard Harris and I had about God. After that interview ended, I told Harris that I planned to set up his public image in the first part of my article and then deconstruct it in the second half. He loved the idea so much that he asked me to write, based on the same concept, a skeleton script for his upcoming 
one-person show. Two years later, after reading a profile I wrote for the Irish Independent, he asked me to become his biographer. Harris said he liked the fact that I wasn't an arse-licker, and that I'd criticised him if I felt it necessary. When I accepted the offer, he said, Our book must be full of criticism. Then in 1990, Harris made a double comeback in the film The Field and on stage in Henry IV. We did another interview. This brings us back to the turbulent journey quote. I asked him to describe himself as truthfully as possible, minus masks, at the age of 60. It's been a turbulent journey, and I now think that the essential thing we search for is a sense of peacefulness. Also, I think that defining what God is in the Judeo-Christian society you and I grew up in is hugely important. Defining what we mean by the existence of God, the meaning of God, and the nature of our personal relationship with God. If we come to terms with that, this, I believe, is as close as we will get to peace. I would hate to come to the end of my journey and not have recognised the strong possibility that what we were searching for in life was to have a sight of God, a feeling of God. If that hadn't happened, it would really upset me. Richard picked up this thread 12 hours later, after a performance in Henry IV and after midnight. This raises the question of whether I should retire and live out the rest of my life in another way. Having made this artistic resurrection, I'm tempted to say, let it all go, focus elsewhere. I know I can't leave much behind, apart from a few good performances, but how important is it for me really to play a marvellous King Lear? It isn't going to change the world or make an enormous dent in society or give people an awareness of the beauty of life. So my dichotomy now is, why do I want to be a great Lear? Isn't there something else in life we've all missed? Why are we miscalculating the whole thing? Ego? Greed? Narcissism? While walking around the west coast of Ireland making the field, I had the happiest period ever. I was never at such peace. In the rain. Gorgeous. Something was talking to me. Why wasn't I listening? What was that voice saying? This is heaven? This is where God is? If so... Why am I planning to go to New York with this play? To get brilliant reviews? That is my dilemma. The voices have spoken, they have told me. Go live in the west of Ireland. Get gratification from the simple things. That's where peace is. Richard Harris didn't retire. And it was incidentally during this conversation he admitted he had manipulated the media all his life and had a performance he gave to journalists. Then a decade later, we did an interview for the Sunday Independent that I somehow knew would be our last. So I set out to tie up loose ends regarding his life story. During that interview, Harris, then 70, told me that looking back over his life, he realised that his image, namely his carefully constructed public persona as Richard Harris, was all a fake, designed in part to keep people from getting to know him. After the interview, he asked me to write a treatment for our book so he could send it to an interested publisher. Much to my regret, I didn't. The following year, Richard Harris died. 
But now, near enough to October the 25th, the 20th anniversary of the man's death, I will publish the book that he always wanted me to write. That book, as I say, is called Richard Harris Raising Hell and Reaching for Heaven. And maybe now you understand why it has that title. It can be ordered from any bookstore and it's available from Amazon, the book depository and sites such as that. I thank you for listening to this long reading.